everyone. Uh, I'm a film historian and an academic named Amanda Reyes. And I am not a film historian and not an academic. My name is Eric Threlfall. I'm a podcaster with The Hysteria Continues. Uh, one thing Eric and I definitely have in common is that we love aerobics. We yes. love <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> and we hope everybody here is watching this after their uh, cooled down from this amazing workout called Laura Gemser's Looking Good, which is this kind of, I want to say it's oddball, but it's really not when you look at the history of aerobics videos over the course of the 80s. This is actually kind of a neat companion to a lot of really interesting videos. And we're going to talk a little bit about this on this track. Uh, one thing I want to say before we get started is that, believe it or not, there's not a ton of production history about this. And because of that, um, we will talk a little bit about some people behind the scenes. It actually has a really interesting background from what we could dig up. We could not find anything out about the dancers, so we should just get this out of the way right here. Eric, who's your favorite of these group of lovely ladies? Okay, well, my favorite Amanda would have to be the girl in the pink leotard, uh, particularly towards the end when they start breaking into the freestyle dance moves. Uh, she has got it going on, as they would say. Uh, so I, I, I love her. She's my favorite. I think Laura Gemser would be my favorite if she was actually a participant in the fitness uh, workouts, but she isn't really. She spends most of her time sitting in a wicker chair, which is one of the oddities about this video. Yeah, I think she's sort of the dominatrix of the video. And <laughs> I think if they had gone that route, it would have been really interesting and maybe still fit in because I think a lot of people think that um, aerobicizing is a bit masochistic. And here's your girl here showing us her incredible, flexible body. <laughs> yes. And well, she gets some assistance here from Laura Gemster. She comes over and helps her out. Um, for no particular reason. We all need a little help with this particular Yeah, here we move. go. Now, and she, she's, I don't want to mix her up with Laura Gemser, but there's also another girl here in red that we're going to see in a second that looks very much to me like Susanna Hoffs from the Bengals. <laughs> yes, I know the one you mean. Yeah, yeah and therefore I love her. Uh, but Laura's looking pretty good here, which is why it's called Looking Good. So I'm not exactly sure when this video came out. We can assume it was somewhere in the 80s, uh, probably mid to late 80s, when I think... The aerobicizing uh, fad had really peaked. There's my girl right there. Um, and uh, it is such an interesting video in that, A, it's the first one I think I've ever come across that's dubbed. So that's not Laura Gemster's voice, obviously, or uh, the woman in black. They call her Jill, although there's no Jill in the credits. And that's not her voice either. And I actually recognize the dubbing actresses i don't know their names but they've done tons and tons of uh these european type films and um therefore we can assume this isn't an american production and it's probably not i believe uh where they shot this which is a place called studio palace may be located in italy likely rome uh, mostly because of the behind the scenes people we'll get a little bit more onto that later including the filmmaker herself who's really interesting um, and comes from a really interesting uh, family of filmmakers, if you want to call it that. Um, but what I want to talk about here, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to keep this pretty upbeat, but um, because I am an academic and a historian, we will talk about some of the interesting elements that aerobicizing brought to the 80s in retrospect in terms of how women perceived their own bodies and the power of their bodies, as well as how the fitness craze kind of brought in this idea of a form of patriotism. It was more so with weightlifting and men, but there was something about the fit body in the 80s and Reaganism that's really poignant to me. So these are things we'll talk about. We're also going to watch uh, what looks like weird simulated sex, like we're watching right now, and a lot of <laughs> slow motion movements, and also some really great movies that uh, took advantage of this craze, um, including Perfect and Heavenly Bodies. So there's going to be a lot to talk about here um, while these women move very slowly. I do want to preface this by saying that um, I'm considered a bit of a fitness freak, and it might be why um, I was asked to contribute this track. So I did do this workout yesterday after I did a weightlifting workout. So I was already sore for the day, and then I sat down with this and I decided, let's try it. And some of these exercises are 
uh, what do you want to say? They're overstated stretches. Some of them are actual exercises and some of them are things I've never even heard of. And what I've learned from doing this is a, you really do need a slippery surface to slide on it like they do when they get on their sides. I had carpet and it was very painful. Um, <laughs> but some of it's actually really fun. I don't know if anybody else watching this video is going to try it, but it, it's kind of fun. But you have to have your leg warmers on and it would be good if you had a headband on. Um, otherwise, feel free to go. I think anybody could do this workout. They made it pretty uh simple for people with a couple of are you sure about that amanda because <laughs> you have met me in the flesh and i am not a skinny chap and you suggested maybe i do this workout but i declined um can i do a little name drop here yes um i once met the lovely erica gimple who played coco in the tv series fame and i asked her about the history of leg warmers and what were leg warmers for and apparently they were they're designed to keep the muscles and the thighs warm and the calves warm um to uh you know to so you don't uh, get cramps and stuff i'm not sure how effective they are i think they're just more of a fashion statement to me um what well, do you think I think that they probably do have some effect because I do know what how important it is to warm your body, particularly your ankles. Because so like um, for a long time, I did boot camp and I had a boot camp trainer who was very specific about us doing these circular motions with our toe kind of we're on our tiptoe on one foot and we're kind of rolling our foot around in a circle to get the ankle warm because once the ankle goes, you can't do anything. And so I understand the importance of that. You're not really going to build muscles there or anything, maybe. But they are also a fabulous fashion statement. And I had three pairs of them in the early 80s. I had this purple lavender pair that I worshipped and I wore with everything. And then I had this kind of army green pair that didn't go with anything except this really great mini skirt that I had that I wore to my sixth grade fair. So... Mm -hmm. I do think they serve a couple of different purposes. But yeah, I do think they, I don't know about here. I will tell you that the exercises here aren't super challenging in terms of you're not going to break out in a huge sweat. They are challenging in that you do have to be slightly flexible, I think, to get into some of the positions. And um, and if we come across them while we're talking, we can point some of those out. Like there were a couple where I was like, my legs are not going to get that far apart. That's TMI, but just so you know. But um, <laughs> but well, it would, they're probably easy to do if you do them in slow motion as well. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't try the slow motion, but I did finish like thirty seconds before these girls a number of times. So, which was fine because the direction that Laura gives isn't great. So I had I had to watch the screen and get into the movements. But here is something that is not uncommon for warming up. They're doing it a little bit more stylistically. I'm guessing that all of these girls are dancers. Um, they have dancer physiques and they're also really able to get into these movements really quickly. Um, and I do like that, although there was an issue with fitness in the 80s being predominantly upper and middle, upper middle class um, sort of a thing that happened. It wasn't really happening in the lower middle classes. And the women tended to be white and built a certain way. But we do have a little variety, I think, in these women. We have uh, the blonde girl is a little more sinewy. The girl in the pink is a little more curvy. It's kind of nice. I think we have some decent variety in the girls here. I think Jill's outfit is spectacular and I want to buy it. Um, and so there's a little bit for everybody here. And and you can do this. I can't do this very well. I'm not as like, um, I can do the movements, but I'm certainly not a dancer. So the shoulder stuff was not as glamorous looking here as what I was doing it, but I tried my best. Um, but to get back to the uh, sort of fitness craze of the 80s, you know, in 1982, um, a beautiful model looking a little bit like Connie Seliga, to give you a point of reference, uh, graced the cover of the August 1982 issue of Time. The headline there on the front of the magazine said, Coming on Strong, the New Ideal of Beauty. And there was an article in there by a man named Richard Corliss that kind of in retrospect, pointed out a lot of the things that made aerobics so amazing and exercise in general, and some of the things that made the new beauty ideal um, had tension with the more conservative ways of living we had done before the 70s. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of exercise to catch us up to the 80s, but I wanted to start with this article, and I just want to read this passage to you and then how he ends the article. So Richard Corliss wrote, quote, the sexy fit look has generated a booming business. Pop songs like Olivia Newton-John's Physical and Diana Ross's Work That Body scampered up the charts. 
exercise records have broken out of the Vanity House ghetto. Mickey Mouse, Mickey's Mouser Size has sold more than 350,000 copies. New magazines like Fit and New Body are preaching an enlightened narcissism. Fitness gurus from Richard Simmons to Kathy Smith to the rock-hard perennial Jack LaLanne start the TV day with exhortations to slim down and tone up. At the movies, the new actresses are quirky and resourceful, and so are the characters they play. The old image of the star actress, says Larry Mark, a vice president of production at Paramount Pictures, was of a beautiful woman lounging in her peignoir, popping bonbons while she painted her toenails. Now it's a top body in shorts doing jumping jacks. Juiciness is out. Angularity is in. End quote. Okay, so all of that makes sense, and it really captures the decade uh, very concisely at the beginning of the decade before we saw where it was going to go. But then he, at the end of the article, ends it this way, um, talking about the body. It looks pleasing, and it can run a toaster. So there was this idea that the fit body meant a sort of liberation for women because anyone who could get themselves into the shape had control of their body. And if they had control of their body, they had control of other aspects of their life. And um, at the same time, they were still expecting women to sort of do this kind of exercise to achieve this ideal body and yet still make dinner, have children, and help out around the house. And so there was this really interesting thing happening with aerobics that was both positive and negative. I think one of the most positive things I can think about, and we will talk about Jane Fonda, obviously, is that aerobicizing builds community. Um, there were, at the end of the 80s, over 24 million people participating pretty regularly in aerobics, and 21 million of them were women. So it was a very important movement for us. And we were looking at it in a different ways, but culture was also sort of pushing us to, yeah, it's great that you want this and we're so happy. You look beautiful. You look great. You're healthy. But also you need this body to please a man. And so that the fact that this is called Looking Good is kind of a really fascinating title for this video because I think it encompasses the most important factor that was being pushed about aerobicizing onto culture. Um, and I know, Eric, you said that you had some things about the Time Magazine article you wanted to talk about as well. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of quotes in there and they're by men and they're saying things that probably would not be acceptable in 2022. But you're saying about the disadvantages of aerobicizing and um, Calvin Trillin, who's a New Yorker journalist at the time, he's kind of skeptical of uh, aerobics and hence it does not make necessarily make one more attractive if it is if that's the main goal to make women more aesthetically pleasing for men he says the more people who can lift the end of a car off the ground in case of trouble the better but i'm not sure i see any other advantages to it uh, and then there's another uh, there's an atlanta sports writer called john mcgrath who says um, anything that sweats or has sweated or is about to sweat does not interest me sexually I have a hard time being attracted to anyone who can beat me up. So, yeah, there's this uh, feeling amongst the sort of the male interviewees in this article in time that uh, are sort of against the the athleticizing of women. Um, and Shannon Tweed actually is, is quoted in this as well, of course. She went on to be a famous sort of uh, erotic movie actress. And uh, at this time, she's a Playboy playmate and she's dating you, Hefner. But she says she would not feel threatened by a woman, uh, a muscular woman coming on to her to her beau or her boyfriend. But she would if she was uh, a woman with drop dead curves um, who looked more sort of traditionally womanly, I suppose, and feminine. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting um, anti aerobic uh uh, messages being sent in this article uh, very dated views you know this article is 40 years old now yeah i think it's all kind of writing high on just to give you a little background on um how we got to this sort of fitness craze is you know in 1972 there was a bill passed here called title nine and i don't know how familiar you are with that in 
Ireland, but it was essentially established to protect people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance. So Title IX basically states, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So although that was meant to be across the board uh, for um, discrimination, particularly in schools, um, it ended up becoming a thing about women in sports. So we're starting here in the 70s. And uh, in 1971, fewer than 30,000 women played sports at the college level, representing just 15% of student athletes. Um, many colleges offered few to no women teams at all at their schools. But in 2017, that number grew to over 200,000. So what happened was it ended up becoming this sort of movement to get women into sports and the colleges had to fund these activities. So if the women wanted a football league or a soccer team or a softball team or a baseball team or whatever, the college had to fund it. And there's still been problems with getting as much funding for women's sports as there has with men. But there was an emphasis placed on physical fitness and that had been stemming for a long time from the beginning of the 20th century uh, because physical culture as we know it now was not anything like this prior to the 20th century. Uh, men worked out because they worked in labor, right? And I think their workout was labor. There wasn't this whole thing about exercise, but it began to transform in the 20s and the 30s. And um, that was because of this kind of idea of um, Americana. We were, you're a self-made man if you're physically fit, right? And so it became a business in the 30s, uh, beginning with Jack LaLanne and a couple of other people. And the idea was uh, to create this kind of grand physical transformation, um, which has become fluid over the years from lifting weights to jogging to yoga to aerobics. Um, each one of them has had sort of a, a peak in popularity. And um, like I said, it became kind of a symbol of discipline and having control, which we talked about earlier. Um, and so these stereotypes of who worked out began to emerge. And I think we're seeing in the 80s that they're creating stereotypes of women who work out must be bodybuilders and they must be, they beat me up and whatever, right? So this was, this had started these kind of ideas with men earlier. And gyms were very male-centric spaces until about the 60s when they started creating gyms to that were more luxurious. Everything became about um, what looks good and what makes you feel good to be there. But they actually did not have women and men working out. Often they had women days and men days and the two would never work out together. So um, from this kind of created this binary in exercise goals, right? For men, it was to exemplify strength. For women, it was to exemplify beauty. And so um, in the 70s, we had what I think was the first major fad in fitness, um, which was running. And that became a huge part of the physical fitness culture. Um, and uh, so I'm getting all of this from a book called Getting Physical, The Rise of Fitness Culture in America by Shelley McKenzie. And one of the things McKenzie spoke about um, in her book was this really interesting moment during Carter's presidency. Carter was president in the late 70s and he was a runner or so he said. And he did a public run where the press came to watch him and he did a 10K, which is about 6.2 miles. And he ended up collapsing on the fourth mile, which ended up becoming a very big photography moment for the reporters. And the image of his collapse spread throughout the country. And when he ran for president for a second term, he ran against Reagan. And although Reagan was older, he kind of pushed this thing that he was physically fit. And as a matter of fact, he promoted himself on the cover of a magazine here, lifting, um, doing bicep curls. And there were pictures of him with a chainsaw doing, you know, breaking down trees and things like that. And so um, he won president, he became very popular president and he brought the eighties, which is where we got this, what we're looking at here. So thank you, Reagan, for that. But his name, his nickname became Ron Bow. And, um, and fitness became aligned with military service, right? Like if you're fit, you can be in the military. And then it became this sense of patriotism and physical viability equaled professional capability, according to McKenzie. And so this was, um, behind the apex that had already started with fitness in the seventies. And then the health club scene really transformed in the eighties and, 
Um, and it had all the other stuff like membership, promoted exclusivity. Like it was a club that you could get in if you could afford it. They became great spaces for community and for friendship and for dating. And in, in turns, it's not that far-fetched to think about women going to the gym to meet men because they actually felt more comfortable in the gym. Um, a, because they shared a common interest already by being there. Two, it was also very brightly lit and women actually felt safer. Um, which was interesting, and I never considered that aspect of it. Um, so, unfortunately, in the 80s, when we got into the... So, they're doing what I think is more low impact. I don't feel like you could... Like, that's a really hard exercise, but you're probably not going to injure yourself doing it. But high impact and going really hard in the 80s led to burnout. And so, when the 90s came, you may remember that yoga became, like, the big workout. And it's probably because we got so burnt out doing things like this. And so I wonder, Eric, in the UK, do you remember much about the aerobicizing craze in the 80s? Well, yeah, I mean, we obviously got the Jane Fonda uh, videos and albums over here, which were a big hit. Uh, gym membership is it's a big thing now. I'm not sure it was in the 80s. I think the Jane Fonda thing appealed to people because it allowed them to do it in the privacy of their own homes, particularly if you're out of shape like I am going to a gym is not something that uh, you know it's it's not something that would appeal to me basically um we had a lot of uh uk soap stars would bring out fitness videos over here i am have you ever seen a, a uk soap um uh, clips I, mean, I haven't unfortunately clips, seen okay. like coronation they're, street yeah they're very different to american soaps so if you think dallas dynasty knots landing falcon crest they're all sort of rich people big business fancy cars big shoulder pads over here it's people living in cramped terraced houses you know working in cafes and pubs and that type of thing so there's kind of a more down-to-earth gritty nature although it's they're still very silly um so th they they take people from the soaps put them into fitness videos um so we had people like beverly callard who played liz mcdonald's incarnation street she'd kind of an analog of of jane fonda it's kind of a woman in her 40s who's in good shape but in her video she brings along a lot of her friends who are various sizes and ages and that and i think that kind of appealed probably to the more working class audience that the soaps would have in the uk and ireland I, there's more of a familiarity and the connection with people like that I, you grew up i know in las vegas amanda see celebrities probably weren't that unusual to you but for me growing up in small town ireland celebrities felt very alien they almost felt like they didn't exist like they were, they were kind of made up um so if i was watching a fitness video with um you know latoya jackson or jane fonda or somebody who's like very very hollywood and glam I wouldn't necessarily feel like they're speaking to me. Whereas if you give me somebody like an actress from Carnation Street or EastEnders, I might feel more of a connection with it and feel like, I, oh, I can be like that. Um, so I'm thinking that's basically why I think uh, our fitness videos over here were quite different. I mean, as the decade wore on, we, we were getting people from reality TV, particularly like Big Brother contestants. Uh, would bring out fitness videos and the, the unusual thing was that people like Jade Goody and Josie Gibson were what you would perceive as being slightly overweight when they're on the television they came out of the Big Brother house lost some weight and brought out fitness videos and they sold bucket loads absolute bucket loads of these fitness videos uh, again because I think people were like okay well they I'm the I was the same I'm the same same shape as they were when they were on the television now look at them now I can do this too so this is kind of the the approach the sort of UK fitness scene took was taking more ordinary people and pushing them into fitness videos whereas I think in the US like <laughs> I was watching the share fitness video and she's doing kind of step aerobics in a Basque and fishnet tights, which <laughs> is definitely not some like she's just stepped off the video for if I could turn back time or something, um, which is great. I mean, it's very, very watchable. But I think the, the audience over here wanted more of an average Joe Soap type person on their screens. But I do love the share video. I'm not going to slag off Cher. She's amazing. Oh, yes, yeah, she is amazing. And that's a really fun video. And Step Aerobics is really fun. Um, and I might have made a note that I really like the look. And she's not leading it either. So here, uh, when you talk about, like, there's a major difference because 
one thing about the soaps that I did notice in the UK is that they are very working class and here everything is more aspirational. It's about like this fantasy of like how rich can you get like they're like for instance I watch Young and the Restless here and they're gazillionaires they're gazillionaires and and they look fabulous and everybody's a size two and and it's very aspirational and so we promote that still uh, to this day and we certainly did it in the 80s as well and Cher is a great example but there were some really interesting so we'll talk about Jane Fonda and stuff and the history of aerobics but uh, since you've brought up these videos, I'd like to talk about some of the ones that really stood out to me. There was a variety of them. Estelle Getty had one from the Golden Girls. Angela Lansbury had one that was really about positive thinking that's fabulous. Um, then there was the Latoya Jackson one, which I also think she's just kind of off on the side. Those are kind of the better workouts because, for instance, Heather Locklear had one. And although it's great and it's fun, she um, has admitted that she knew nothing about aerobics. And they had like some a little piece in her ear. And they were just like, just do jumping jacks. And so she would do jumping jacks. And they were like, okay, bend forward. So she bent forward. And so a lot of the ones that are led by the famous person aren't necessarily the best videos because they're not um, qualified to be teaching these. And that was another thing about the 80s is that uh, accreditation wasn't as emphasized. So a lot of people teaching aerobics didn't understand injury and how the body really moved and stuff like that and later um i think it might have been in the late 80s or early 90s cindy crawford made a couple of videos that are now considered semi-dangerous uh, by the moves that she makes and she's really just kind of kicking her legs around but um but there was a wide variety and i think marie osmond did one for pregnant women sandy duncan did one called the five minute exercise that was just supposed to be for women who were um really busy and they needed to just get it out really fast. And so there was this idea. Oh, there was a really good one. I have to mention it. Um, it. Fabio did one. And I think it was specifically so that women would just look at Fabio. It's actually a weightlifting um, one, but it's hand weights. And he's got a woman leading it. I, I watched it. It's really amazing. It looks like a really good workout. And he's just in the back being Fabio. And, and um, do you do you like to look at Fabio? Because I, I am of the same persuasion and I don't particularly like looking at Fabio. I wouldn't say he's my favorite in terms of aesthetically pleasing men. And I, I, but there's nothing wrong with him. But but I could see at the time he was very famous for being on these romance novels and women loved him, you know. Mm. And so to have him in a workout video, I think, was the draw, even though he's not creating the workout or, or actually performing it in the way that the woman is who's directing you so i think it was really just there for the eye candy of it aspect of it and mostly they were led by women and this one is actually led by a woman with just fabio in the background and and it looked like of the workouts i watched it looked like the one that i would be most likely to do there was one that arnold schwarzenegger did that was for the gym and i don't understand how you would watch a video at the gym without youtube so <laughs> yes. but but mostly it was it was pretty much female centric and that's a very specific reason so actually aerobics was created by a man named dr kenneth cooper in 1968 he was a very controversial doctor even though now the stuff that he was working on we do every day to study um our heart rate and um he coined the term aerobics which came from the word aerobic and he made it an um a noun from an adjective and his goal was just just to investigate the links between cardiorespiratory fitness and improving the quality and quantity of people's lives so i do want to say dr kenneth cooper is still alive he's in his 90s and he's still overseeing the cooper institute um, so he, he is a great example of how cardiorespiratory fitness can uh, better your life and um, give you longevity. And he used a system of charts to kind of figure out um, where people were in terms of their health. And it was it was medical. Now, he had, would have people run on a treadmill, which at the time people were like, this person has a heart condition. You don't put them on a treadmill. But it turns out that's what we do now to rate um, our heart in um, at the doctor's office and stuff, depending on our what's wrong with that uh, muscle. But um, anyway, so he sort of created this idea of it. And then a woman named Jackie Sorensen um, kind of took it and she synthesized it into this kind of fun, effective aerobic workout routine where she used dance movements and choreography, which is exactly what we're seeing here. Um, she began teaching the wives of uh, those serving in the military in 1969. And by 1981, she had over 170,000 students taking classes in a series of franchise studios. And then from there, we had a woman named Judy Shepard Missett who developed jazzercise in the 70s. Um, and that led her to becoming a woman who is worth over $100 million. She had 8,500 franchise studios. 
And then in before we got to Jane Fonda, we got what is probably the anti-Jane Fonda workout video, which is Aerobicize, the beauty workout, which was created by a man named Ron Harris. Um, so I'm guessing people listening to this are familiar with Aerobicize because it's gone on to hit kind of a cult status. Um, it's the really famous uh, workouts that used to show up on Showtime magazine for about 20 minutes at five in the morning with really beautiful women dancing around a kind of white background and doing very, very bendy, bendy, bendy moves that were pretty erotic. And um, it was a phenomenon then, and it's still kind of a phenomenon. And it's beautifully shot, even though I think the workouts are probably impossible if you're not 20 and a dancer. Um, they look great. And he, um, Harris was a fashion photographer whose work was seen in Vogue and Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan and Elite. And so he really understood the female form and how to sort of use it to the best of their ability in terms of like a physical aesthetic. And so in the early 80s, um, he started a, he created a four minute pilot with his girlfriend who would go on to become the producer of Aerobicize. And uh, People Magazine called it the sexiest show on television. It's been released on every kind of home video format possible. And it actually was the beginning of, um, for a number of people who would go on to be kind of famous. Now, it was seen in Friday the 13th Part 4. I know you love that scene with Axel watching the aerobicizing girls, Eric. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's there uh, with his cup of coffee and his sandwich watching uh, aerobicize. Uh, so that was my first time seeing aerobicize because it didn't um, make it to this uh, side of the world, unfortunately. Uh, watching the clips on YouTube, though, it's, it's terrific. Uh, it's very pop video-like. As you said, the aerobics themselves, if you're trying to keep up there's absolutely no way. I mean, there's no warm up. There's no warm down. It's just nonstop high energy for an hour or whatever. And uh, yeah, the moves are, yeah, you have to be a dancer or a gymnast to to compete with them. But from a lazy boy's uh, perspective, it's just nice to sit and watch it because the music's kind of catchy. The dance moves are good. Um, you know, the erotic aspect doesn't impact me personally. Uh, I can see why Axel probably in Friday the 13th part four likes it so much. But uh, have you seen the uh, pop video for Work That Body by Diana Ross? Because it's quite similar to Aerobicize. It's Diana Ross and a leotard dancing in a white background. Uh, and it's quite Aerobicize-esque. Now, it was released in uh, the spring of 1982, that video. So I'm wondering which came first. Yeah, that's a good question. I was having a hard time figuring out the timeline. And I think it may predate Aerobicize. And if not, it came out right at the same time that Aerobicize was um, sort of hitting the airwaves. And what's interesting about that video is that um, it looks so much like Aerobicize. It's just Diana Ross being amazing and kind of bopping around. But it was supposed to be a body positive video. And I'm not saying that the Robosize isn't as clearly. These are very glamorous looking women. But that was used for, that's basically eye candy for men. I think a Robosize was meant to be erotic. Whereas Diana Ross's video was meant to, the female uh, viewer was the audience as compared to the male viewer. And so that's what makes it so interesting. And then years later, her daughter actually recreated the video where she put herself, like superimposed herself over the same video dancing alongside her mom because of the body positive message. So I think that's so interesting because they look almost exactly alike, but they have two different messages distinctly implanted inside them. Um, and so I'm totally fascinated by that Diana Ross video. And uh, I think uh, she was accused of ripping off Olivia Newton-John's Physical, but Physical came out, I think, right at the time that Diana Ross's album was being released. So it turned out to be sort of like just this cross-cultural landscape of like aerobics. Everybody was bopping around, you know what I mean? And and they were taking full advantage of it. Um, and so it's just this really interesting moment in time in the early 80s where these things started to cross over as they were just coming out. Um, it was really interesting. So aerobicizing, I think, really just took off in the 80s, like very early on, and it lasted throughout the decade. And just to briefly talk about the um, ties to Friday the 13th Part 4, which we were just talking about, um, Darcy DeMoss, 
who was in Friday the 13th Part 6, was in, featured in one of those workout videos that they showed at Showtime in the morning. And she looks very much like Brink Stevens in the video. She has really, really long hair. She's a, got a very small build. Uh, and she is super bendy. Like, those workouts look impossible to me. And it was also probably the first time that American audiences saw Jane Leaves, who would go on to star in Frasier and, of course, Hot in Cleveland. Um, she was a Benny Hill girl, though. And I guess she came over to the States and she appears in one of those videos too, um, looking spectacular. Uh, there were over 50 videos um, produced for Showtime. And uh, Hugh Hefner actually called Ron Harris, the creator of those aerobicizing videos, the king of erotica. Um, and he tried to run with it as long as he could. He released an LP of music featured on the show in 1983. In 1986, he actually wrote a book about aerobicizing. And in 1995, when that fad was coming to an end, he created Totally Nude Aerobics. And I don't know if anybody remembers the Totally <laughs> Nude series, but there was Totally Nude Yoga. I think I had the Totally Nude Yoga. I remember having one of them because I was so curious about them. And I worked at a video store and they put a bunch up for sale. And I feel like one of them had Julie Strain in them. And, um, and it's exactly what it says it is. It's just totally new working out <laughs> and it's something else. Yeah. Um, um, so <laughs> just, just while we're still on aerobic size, um, I've, I'm guessing, uh, killer workouts, the 1986 slasher movie was released over here under the title aerobic side, which I'm assume is a pun on aerobic size. The, uh, mm -hmm. the, the videos we're talking about, which I, I didn't really realize until, uh, dipping into research for this Laura Gemser video. That's a great example of the eroticism of aerobics because it's got a couple of really great sort of working out numbers in that film with some really good music. And um, and the women are basically just objectified left and right. And I'm not saying if that's right or wrong. I love that movie. But it's, it's about the sexuality of that. And that was a popular motif in a lot of movies. Like uh, the one that I always think of is the opening scene to My Tutor, which was a movie that starred Karen Kay. And um, I'm forgetting his name and I feel really bad about it, but he was married to Olivia Newton-John, ironically enough. Um, and he uh, he falls in love with this older woman who's his tutor. But at the beginning of the movie, during the credits, we see her in an aerobics class and it's basically set up to be like a very sexual thing. To, and it's it's actually sort of creating the character, I think, in a way. So it's used in, in a way that sort of makes sense in the film. But it just showed up in everything. And then there were like really weird dance numbers like Night Train to Terror has like a boppy dance number that borderlines on aerobics. And and Death Spa has some aerobicizing in it. And interestingly enough, in the credits, the people who do the aerobics are called the Death Spa Dancers. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty prevalent. And, um, and I think it really hit its fruition in the very early 80s. Thanks to Jane Fonda, who created a series of high-impact aerobic videos um, starting in 1982. So the video, which was called Jane Fonda's Workout, was the first non-theatrical home video released to top sales charts. And it was one of the top-selling VHS tapes for six straight years. She sold 17 million copies of her videos between 1982 and 1995. And she came to aerobics um, as a fitness buff. Uh, she was actually uh, making the movie The China Syndrome in 1978 and she broke her ankle. So she had been a ballet dancer prior to that and while recuperating she started to look for other alternatives for her exercise routine. Her mother-in-law actually decided, um, uh, directed her to a woman uh, in Beverly Hills named Lindsay Kasdan and uh, she was an aerobics instructor. Fonda fell in love with her. They went into business together. They opened up Jane and Lenny's workout, which was eventually titled Jane Fonda's Workout. Um, and it led to a book, audio cassettes, and, you know, the VHS tapes. And so it's hard to, well, there's a couple things I want to talk about. So for Jane Fonda, it was sort of a political movement. So what Jane Fonda saw was that gyms were opening to men and women to work out together, but women still weren't coming into the gym. And so she thought they might be more likely to get a video and work out in the privacy of their own home where they felt more comfortable. And you were talking about how you uh, feel uh, self-conscious going to a gym. She was specifically mm -hmm. thinking of that audience. And so she created her first video and it wouldn't have happened had there not been the creation of VHS. And I don't want to go into the history of VHS or anything, but uh, alongside this phenomenon of aerobics and all uh, these flurry of videos that came out from all of these people, 
you have to remember too that VHS democratized the film industry in a lot of ways because before that what we had was what the network televisions were going to show us or cable at this time and what the theaters were going to show us and that was all based off programming right and we were sort of not um we had didn't have the free will to watch what we wanted nor did filmmakers from various parts of the country have the will to make a movie and get it out into theaters right if it's an independent production it was a lot harder so the creation of the vhs it was i, I can't even you can't overstate how important it was because because it allowed filmmakers all over the world in this country in particular to make all kinds of regionally shot films that they could get into video stores and it allowed this this sort of aerobicizing VHS boom to flourish beyond our wildest dreams where everybody was making a video. I mean, we just talked about a handful of people who have done it and there's tons more. And so um, it was a very important movement and... Uh, What's interesting, though, is that because aerobics creates a really strong community, when you're doing it in your own home, you're not really working with that same subset. So it was it was it served two different purposes. And so it was a really interesting thing. Thanks to Jane Fonda, who created uh, whatever this movement you want to call it. It was just extraordinary. And it kept growing from there because in the 1980s, Jen Miller developed step aerobics. Um, and that was her low impact alternative to the dance fitness classes that were growing in popularity. Um, her classes exploded um, because she could accommodate people with lower levels of fitness and those with injuries. And she basically invented step aerobics. And then we got, which is probably the coolest thing, um, we had the creation of um, sports aerobics, which was where Sports Fitness International, which was founded by two people named Howard and Karen Schwartz, they turned aerobics into a competitive sports, which led to these really fabulous national aerobic championships, um, which you can watch the 1988 Crystal Light competitions online. Um, I haven't ever seen the other. There were at least four years of this competition. Alan Thick was the host because he was an honorary chairperson for the National Fitness Foundation. Um, it was backed by the International Dance Exercise Association, and the first competition was held in L.A. in 1984. It wasn't sponsored by Crystal Light. It was sponsored by Shape Magazine and Avion Water, and it featured a woman um, named Holly Gagnier, who worked for Jade Fonda, who would go on to star in daytime soaps like When Life to Live and Days of Our Lives, and is also the love interest in Alligator 2. Um and is now an acting coach. So that's really cool. That was really neat for me to see that. It was a three-day competition. The tryouts were held in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and New York. Uh, probably other places. I'm guessing L.A. And then everybody was flown into Miami. And then they would do these really amazing... Like what we're watching here is synchronized aerobics. But what... And I know you've seen the videos. You're watching people do like amazing energetic well, it's, like dance It's dancing. Numbers. Yeah. It is dancing. I mean, they're we've found there is a fine line between aerobics and dance, you know, researching these videos. Uh, so for me, that aerobics championship is dance really. Yeah. And it, you know, when you watch things like, let's talk about perfect here because perfect, which came out in the mid eighties directed by, I believe James Bridges, which starred Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta and actually based on a real series of articles that appeared in Rolling Stone magazine. And the film was meta enough to cast the editor of Rolling Stone into the film um, playing the editor of Rolling Stone uh, is a movie where you really see how they incorporated dance into it. Now, have you ever tried, and I, I know I'm saying this, and I'm saying you don't ever try these, but have you ever <laughs> tried the Jamie Lee Curtis version of aerobicizing? It looks insane. It looks even more high energy than aerobicize. I mean, the speed at which they're uh, exercising is, yeah, it, it just looks unattainable to me. Have yeah. you tried it? No, I love to watch it. I love that movie. That movie is so amazing to me. And it's amazing that I don't think it's ever had a home video release on DVD or Blu-ray. I'm not positive of that. but It I think, has. I, I have oh. it on DVD over here, but it's just, it's a bare bones thing. But it looks, it looks quite good. Uh, I love the film too, just for the record. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and the stuff she does is so... I mean, I don't even know what the another word to use is. It just it is so well choreographed and uh, beautifully put together, and it is very high energy. And as a matter of fact, at the end of it, they have like sort of an aerobic sizing marathon, where John Travolta's character shows up at this one of the in sports fitness where the movie takes place was a real sports club, and they were all over L.A. and they were these huge forty five thousand square foot 
gyms that uh, really embraced the aerobic culture. And, um, and you can see it in this video because hundreds of people have shown up to this competition to work out. And she's sort of leading the competition with this really great sort of Western dun, 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 kind of music. And, um, and it's really fun, but it was, it was a phenomenon. The movie itself, I think bombed when it came out, but in, in retrospect, I mean, it's, it's a very good film on, in its own right, but just for the way it captured the culture of fitness in that time, but also the way, um, my favorite character in the film is played by Lorraine Newman, who is, uh, nicknamed the best piece, uh, most used piece of equipment in the gym. And it's a story about how she's trying to achieve the quote unquote perfect body to find love. And, um, and it ends up being this really poignant sort of beep story in, in the overall film. And it's, it, I think it really captures this idea we were talking about where time magazine was emphasizing beauty over, over health or feeling good or, or feeling like your body was strong and you could do these things and it made you feel better about yourself. All of that took a, backseat to being desirable to men you know and that's a huge portion of the film in that the Lorraine Newman character and uh her roommate played by oh my gosh why can't I remember her name can you remember her name I can't remember her name sorry oh my gosh I feel so bad that I didn't write it down she played Nardo on Taxi yeah the the plot of the movie does mirror what was mentioned in in that Time magazine though about how women are more comfortable in the gym, you know, flirting and meeting men because it's a more uh, comfortable environment, brightly lit, lots of people around. Uh, so this is exactly the premise of Perfect. And I think what Perfect has going for it, uh, in retrospect, looking back at dance movies of the 80s, is it does have a proper plot. Whereas something like Heavenly Bodies or Flashdance or even Breakin', it's quite, they're, they're quite fl- the plot's quite flimsy, even though the dancing is amazing in all of them. Yeah, I want to say her name is Mary Lou Henner. And yes. yeah, you're right. Like um, the aerobics is, is part of the plot. Whereas in other movies, they just like throw in, like I said, in my tutor, there's no reason really for her to be bending that way, but they have it. So, <laughs> and that's fine too. I mean, they, I, I think the fact that they are so brightly lit is is kind of engaging too, because I think when we think of the eighties, we think of exactly what we're looking at here, are these kind of bright poppy colors, like the backdrop they have here is very simple. But I think it captures the time and era really well, you know. Maybe not the chairs over there on the side where you sit. Yeah, with, but... <laughs> I know. <laughs> they, they did half the studio. but um, And then, by the way, this is a place called Studio Palace. And if you've ever tried to look up Studio Palace online, it's almost impossible uh, to find it because it's such a generic title. But yes. um, the moves here were put together. They were actually choreographed, um, which surprised me to the degree that they hired a man named uh, Merritt Beck, who is actually a pretty well-established dance instructor. He worked at the Peoples of the World Academy in Moscow. He was also a member of the International Council of Dance, and he taught for a time in Rome. And I feel like this may have been shot in Rome. I I have no proof of that. Um, He taught ballet dancing in the style of a woman named Agrippina Vaganova. I hope I said that right. She was a choreographer who taught methods of the old imperial ballet school style. He was a pretty well-recognized and well-loved dance instructor. And he put this together. And so when you go back to this, it being so entrenched in dance, clearly the choreography is done by somebody who is an expert in this sort of movement. He also, I think... We're getting to the part here where they're going to start freestyling. Yes. So, <laughs> and I'm not real sure how much of that was um, Merritt Beck. Some of it you can tell is very well choreographed. But um, and when they, once they get going together, it looks a lot better. But we're also I I don't know if we're going to catch it while we're talking here. But they do do the robot. Yes, which, <laughs> which is amazing. Which which um possibly dates this i'm thinking for a date of production possibly 83 because a lot of the music used uh in, well all of the music is done by a chap called ralph de blanc and uh, he seems to have only released one album and all of the tracks on the album seem to be used in this video so that was released <laughs> in 19, 1983 which mm. makes me think it might have been around then i know that in 82 laura gemster did appear in a dick randall production called invaders of the lost gold um so it might have been something they worked on after production had completed on that that was shot in the philippines 
Um, so yeah, she did. She did a, a manual movie for him too. And I don't forget. I know it was. I think it was called The Dirty Seven, and I can't remember the sub. The AKA Emmanuel. I don't know if it was an official Emmanuel, but um, yeah. So she had a relationship with Dick Randall, and so we should maybe talk about the filmmaker because this movie was made by Dick Randall's wife, Corliss Randall, um, who is a really interesting woman. She was born in New Orleans. Uh, she is the granddaughter of a singer band leader, Louis Prima. Her father owned several clubs on Bourbon Street. So as a child, she actually performed with Louis Armstrong on stage, among many other notable jazz musicians. At 14, she began to train to become an opera singer, and she attended Berkeley University Exchange. Um, and there are actually newspaper clippings under her birth name, uh, which is Anselmo, performing in uh, Berkeley. She's a soprano. Uh, this took her to Italy where she would meet Dick Randall in Rome. And then she ended up kind of uh, saying, oh, here's the robot, by the way, and it's just beautiful. And the girl in the red really goes for it. She's going to do this great leg movement here. She's like, keep going, keep going. So uh, <laughs> so anyway, she ended up kind of putting her music career aside, Corliss did. And, um, and she ended up working with her husband. She was actually second unit on Slaughter High. She worked often under the name Chick Norris. She is stunning, by Which the way. Which is an absolutely brilliant alias. Yeah, it is. And it's because Randall did a lot of those Bruce Lee L.E. movies and um, and had Hong Kong studios and she was working with him at that time. So after his death in 1997, she moved back into music. Um, she would end up uh, performing with different bands and things like that, doing a lot of jazz in Dixieland. But I think the most interesting thing I saw was she actually was really good friends with Amy Winehouse. So uh, she would go on to sort of, uh, she's known all kinds of different people in the world and has had a really fascinating life. And the production manager on this, his name was like Giancarlo, um, I'm sorry, Gianni Nunari, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that. He's credited here as Johnny Nunari, or Nunori. It's spelled just slightly different. Um, he was a frequent collaborator with Dick Randall in his early days um, working in film. Um, I think he worked on the Bruce Lee L.E. films. Um uh, but at the age of 25 years old, he moved to Hollywood and he would eventually go on to produce Seven, From Dust Till Dawn, The Departed, 300, Shutter Island, and a bunch of other movies. So the people actually working behind the scenes are pretty notable. And I think it's unfortunate that the women here that we're looking at dancing, these beautiful ladies, I couldn't find anything out about them. Um, a couple of them, I will tell you their names. You'll see their names in the credits, but it's Helen Hall, a woman with this great name, Alexandria Sammartino, Elena Bearer, Daniel Young, and Monica Steele. And unfortunately, a couple of those names are, are Monica Steele isn't, could belong to anybody or Daniel Young. So it was really hard to find anything out about these women, but you'll also notice there's no Jill in the credits, even though the woman in black is called Jill in this film. And, um, and then of course we have our lovely Laura Gemser, who... I th you think there would be more about this video. I don't know its exact VHS release. Were you able to find any information out about like if the UK ever had it released there? No, but I I think it's it's a it's an odd choice to have Laura, Laura Gemser front uh, fitness video. I'm not sure she would have the marquee value of uh, you know of a Jane Fonda or you know someone else of that ilk share uh so yeah i i, I doubt it got a a release in in the uk i could be wrong though um i just always thought for her as more of a cult item now she did release a single in 1980 uh in it was released in germany only i don't sure how it fared on the charts but uh she she was a woman of many many talents uh so maybe she did have a a, a bigger profile than i give her credit for but i always thought her as, as more of a cult actress that you know, a lot of mainstream moviegoers would not be familiar with. Yeah, especially under that name, because um, what was her? Uh, I'm trying to remember her stage name when she did these non-erotic films. Oh, Moira Chen. That's right, and she actually did a TV movie in the early '80s with Michael Landon, and they had to use that name because they were worried that her uh, attachment to the erotica Emmanuel films would like destroy people wanting to watch it or something would happen you know michael Landon was considered very family friendly um in the 80s because of little house on the prairie but a lot of newspaper articles knew who she was and and they said it as such but the movie was called love is forever it aired in uh 1983 on nbc and it's based on a true story and she's very good in it um she plays like a loatian woman who's sort of caught in this war-torn uh era of her country and she falls in love with uh one of the only western 
journalists left in the country and he has to leave and she's trapped and finds herself in a really kind of hinky situation and he comes in he gets her and the movie's most famous for its underwater sequences but um she did a few movies like that which you pointed out um she was in a movie called endgame which you talked about which joe, joe diamato yeah. made that yeah it's kind of a, a running man type movie uh, a post-apocalyptic uh, film you know in the style of escape from new york warriors uh, mad max type of film and it, yeah she used the pseudonym moira chen in that as well but then seemed to drop it after that for any subsequent appearances she made a lot of uncredited appearances in films after this like in 11 days 11 nights and um a few a few others uh so i think this was sort of the tail end of her acting career she then kind of moved into costume design and she worked famously on troll 2 that's right the infamous troll 2 yes i think well so she she her husband starred in um all of the emmanuel films with her gabrielle tinty except for one and uh, and she also had a really good relationship with Joe D'Amato, who she said was shy, wonderful, and a sweet person. And so I kind of feel like when she was making the Emmanuel movies, the impression I got from watching interviews with her was that there were certain aspects of the films that maybe she didn't love, but she loved the travel. She loved working with her husband and she loved Joe D'Amato. And I think her husband passed away and then he passed away. And I kind of think her love of uh, working in film in front of the camera died out and you know she had a career in fashion design she had actually gone to school to become um to work in fashion and uh, she attended a place called the artibus art school in the netherlands but she was so beautiful that you know she just ended up kind of moving into modeling and she ended up in several magazines in the 70s which led to the emmanuel films um so yes, she also ended up on the front cover of a number of uh, records yes that's um, right so Barbados by Typically Tropical, was that a hit in the U.S.? Because it was a big hit over here. No, I don't think so. Okay, so you might recognize the tune, but I won't sing it for you. But she's <laughs> on the cover of that, of that single sleeve, and she she was on the cover of a lot of Hawaiian-themed music albums from around this time as well, For I suppose because she has that kind of maybe slight Hawaiian look to her. Um, and she's on a Perez Prado album cover as well called Patricia. So yeah, she must have been doing a lot of modeling around this time. These are all kind of mid-70s releases. Yeah, I think uh, she's really exotic and interesting. And, and back in the day, we, for better or worse, would often hire uh, people who uh, looked more ethnic to play all the ethnic parts instead of just looking at different actors. And so I could see where she would be really versatile in her beauty. And uh, and she's good, you know, I don't want to downplay it here. She, there's no, she's doing nothing. She looks like she's having a little bit of fun sitting in that wicker chair and she's probably happier to be there maybe <laughs> than doing this dance number, which is really hard with the little tap they do there. The double tap is, I didn't try to do this part by the way, because <laughs> there's just no way. I, and also well, the, the girl, with... oh, I just want to point out the girl in the pink cap leotard disappeared. Yes. Yeah, she has completely. Um, the thing with Laura Gemster, though, is that she speaks perfectly fluent English with almost an American accent. Now, she was raised in Holland where their, um, you know, their English is, is their second language, but they all seem to speak it incredibly well. So there's no reason why she couldn't narrate this using her own voice, I don't think. But the fact that she's off screen for a lot of it and she's not using her own voice, I mean, yeah, it's yes. a strange decision. It is, and and based on just what we could, this was basically all we could find out on the background information, and because uh, De Blanc is considered an Italo disco kind of performer, I'm guessing they're in Rome, but there was no way to back into that. I tried my best to look at places called Studio Palace in Rome, and then I just tried to do a general search for it, and I couldn't find any of it. But this was produced by Dick Randall. His uh, Spectacular Trading Company, I think, are the titles you see at the front of this, and then it's a spectacular video production that's seen at the end credits. Um, that was his company that was um, most known for uh, the Hong Kong stuff. Um, and uh, he did Crocodile, the erotic adventures of Robinson Crusoe. Spectacular Trading International seems to be a branch of it. And that's where Corliss would work with him on things like Slaughter High. And I don't know if she worked on Don't Open Till Christmas, but that's a Spectacular Trading International film. So, yeah, it's got this really vague background i don't know where it got released there's just a handful of people online who have reviewed it because i don't think it if it did come out i don't think it circulated very well 
And it's known as this really kind of beautiful oddity that actually fits very well into the history of aerobicizing. I mean, they did nothing wrong with the production of it in terms of capturing what everybody else was doing at the time, but but instead with uh, Emmanuel, right, being the uh, woman at the front of it and to the side of it mostly. Um, and we're here at the end. She's going to give us her beautiful peace sign. And so we should probably, unless you have anything you want to add, uh, well, I'm just going to say I'm guessing it was shot in Rome as well. I, I, Laura Gemster was a native of Rome at the time, and Dick and uh, Randall and Corliss Randall were living in London. So I'm assuming it was filmed in Europe somewhere. Yes, yeah, somewhere. If anybody knows, let us mm. know. Yeah. But, <laughs> and don't sit on someone's feet like that. It's very dangerous. Yeah, unless you're a professional. Yes. And so anyway, again, my name's Amanda Reyes. And my name is Eric Threlfall. And the only thing we regret is that we didn't get to talk about Heavenly Bodies. But thank you so much for tuning in to this. And we hope you enjoyed it. And I wanted to talk about breaking. Oh, shoot. Shoot.